Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features composer Kincaid Rapp. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore, and today my lovely, my wonderful, my delightful co-host is the amazing Dr. Adam Paul Cordell. How are you today, my dear? I'm doing well, Rosie. So today we are super excited to actually be interviewing one of my very near and dear collaborators who I met during the pandemic. Uh, We've actually never met in person, joy of the internet, uh, but I have had the absolute privilege of collaborating with this person on a number of occasions. And that is the incredible Kincaid Rob. Kincaid is an award-winning composer working at the intersection of storytelling and new music. Now, one of the things that we are going to get into in the questions is their interest in theme parks and music, and all of their music is incredibly magical and fun. They have collaborated with a number of ensembles, such as Paradise Winds, The Blank Experiment, The Driftwood Quintet, Contra Duo, Duo R2, and many, many more. Kincaid is also the founding member of Basket of Owls, an ensemble of musician narrators dedicated to curating spaces for unheard stories. So, without further ado, hey my dear, it is so nice to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for that that charming introduction. You make me sound so much more than I am. (laughs) In your research, you look at the interaction between music and theme parks, which again, I think is the coolest thing on the planet. I have never been to Disney in Florida, uh, but I am a huge fan of Alton Towers, which is in the UK. Um, What prompted this particular research interest? Well, I've never been to Alton Towers, but I have been to Disney. So we'll meet somewhere in the middle. I, I, I thought what it was was uh, the music of theme parks initially. That What I was really interested in was the phenomenon of the theme park itself. How something so uh, immersive and amazing and magical could uh, attract so many people and create so many like memories that last a lifetime because that's something that's very baked into the theme park phenomenon and its design practices. And the way they do it is with storytelling. So what my, my interest is the phenomenon of storytelling, the um, narratology through the lens of theme parks and how we can take 
the way that theme parks accomplish storytelling or inspire or encourage an internal uh, internal human instinct for storytelling and how we can take that and bring that into new music. For Alton Towers, which is like one of the biggest theme parks in the UK, it's one of my favorite places I went as a child, uh, the kind of theme tune of the park was Hall of the Mountain King by Grieg. So you get on the little elevator thing and it goes, it's great. Um, and Alton Towers is uh, fascinating because um, it, it's, it's one of the only theme parks where every ride is a horror attraction. They've done some really interesting experiments with music and media, and it's definitely on my bucket list. So I have a couple of follow-ups with this. Can you talk about some of your most interesting findings with this, especially when writing your thesis? And how has this research then influenced your own compositional approach? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, what I found uh, through my research, which was uh, which was really interesting because it, it ended up uh, with a lot of unlikely sources, including like Harvard Business Review, um, from this one article called um, Welcome to the Experience Economy by uh, Joseph Pine II and James Gilmore, that outlined these core tenets of what makes an experience. And um, so it comes down to engage all five senses, reinforce positive cues about the experience, eliminate negative cues about the experience, create memorabilia, and theme the experience. So all of these went into these theories that, that I was developing regarding how uh, we do the work of storytelling uh, as musicians and how we can uh, better take advantage of storytelling instincts. Because as humans, storytelling is fundamental to what we do and who we are. It's uh, every if-then situation is a tiny little story. Story is how we keep our, each other out of danger and how we eliminate our own vulnerabilities. We can take this instinct that is fundamental to human evolution and adapt it for entertainment purposes, which I think is just wonderful. But what I found is, we're, is we as musicians do it very badly because, we, because our, the experiences of our music are full of negative cues that do not reinforce uh, storytelling and do and do not and do not and decidedly do not inspire storytelling. Uh, one of my biggest complaints was regarding the use of the proscenium in classical music. For those of you who don't know, proscenium is basically the idea of the fourth wall. In storytelling practice, uh, that is part that is a narratorial device. That is a device that in a theater, a scenic designer, a lighting designer. Uh, we'll be able to make choices based on how the proscenium works and what angle uh, the audience is viewing the production from. And in theme parks, we also have this, but it's uh, literally the ride vehicle as you traverse through a uh, a dark ride like Pirates of the Caribbean. Uh, you are your perspective is being controlled by the motion of the actual vehicle. In music, we have an ensemble come out into stage. You have this perspective. But you're not telling a story. It's so you're not using the proscenium well. And, and so I, I say no prosceniums ever in, in, in classical music unless it's a really deliberate choice because it's a hugely negative cue and it takes you out of the experience, out of the immersive experience of storytelling. And, and that I found to be hugely problematic. Uh, and so largely what my thesis was about was 
how to eliminate negative cues in the in the presentation of new of new music and um how to and what we are doing that is positive and how to use our music to engage all five senses whenever we can to um be more curatorial about the experience of the audience member as composers and as performers so that they walk away from the experience saying wow that was incredible. That's something I really would like to engage in again. And, and so how does that affect my work? One of the things that I do in the context of my music is I do a lot of theming. And I, and I try to give performers as much to work with in terms of uh, curating an experience of my music as possible. The example that I use in the case study that I used in my thesis uh, was of um, my piece Diamondback Darlene, which is for solo, lever, harp, and narrator. Uh, I wonder who does that. Oh, no idea. Who knows? There's no one else. No, no idea. But, um, uh, but Shauna Norton, uh, who's uh, from Austin, Texas, performed this piece, I believe in its live premiere, on her porch. Uh, paired with cupcakes uh, on a spring afternoon, and she she has she has uh, vines growing all around her porch, and she literally calls it the green proscenium. And I was interviewing her, and she told me that I was like, "Oh my god, I can't make this up." What she did with my work, maybe inadvertently, but she made it possible to for it to be performed in such a way that was more engaging and more memorable and more totally in line with what I encourage performers and presenters to do with my music and with my art. So, Kincaid, um, both Rosie and I are familiar with your work through the consortia that you have set up. Um, so I was wondering if you could chat a bit about what exactly consortia are and how you go about putting them together. Sure. Um, so I realized very early on into the pandemic when I realized that I, would, I, I had to adapt. Commissions were going to be difficult mm -hmm. because um uh everyone had suddenly lost a large part of their income with live performance and what i decided uh to do was um invest in the idea of the consortium which a consortium is a commissioning mode perhaps uh in which a group of musicians comes together and says we all believe in this vision for peace and we want to pay to make it happen, but it would be easier than just one of us paying for all of us to pay a little bit. You can think of it kind of as a little as a as a mini Kickstarter for classical musicians um, to champion the work of a composer and say, 
we believe in this and we believe in this idea and we want to see it happen. And uh, the way that I organize commission uh, consortia, I uh, select or occasionally a someone demands that uh, they be a consortium captain who is willing to champion the work and take it uh, from the blue sky phase, which is a um, design practice that I actually borrow from theme park design, uh, through to completed product. And in exchange for helping to recruit musicians to the consortia, they get access to premiere rights and uh, first recording rights, uh, their name everywhere, um, and everything I can do for them, I do. And then uh, we spend a month recruiting, and I typically spend about a month writing, though I've been thinking about the piece for a lot longer. I certainly, as a composer, subscribe to a think slow, write fast mentality mm -hmm. um, and creative practice. While I'm thinking about a piece, I can be writing another one, and this allows me to dovetail them together throughout the course of a year. Uh, this year's current consortia is uh, called Bridges, filling gaps in instrumental pedagogies, and it's designed to be 10 intermediate pieces for instruments who need spaces in their repertoire filled uh, in order to make it easier on teachers and in order to provide them with uh, learning opportunities uh, that are from the 21st century mm. that were composed by a breathing composer. Consortia are an opportunity for me to create networks and create little pools of people who get to know me and get to know my work in a way that is uh, that is intimate and special. It really helps build relationships. It certainly, as a model, it seems to be particularly fascinating in the way that it's taking off. I mean, at least I don't feel like I had heard of them until the past four or five years. What it was pre-pandemic was it was a... Um, it was a way to fund large ensemble music mm -hmm. uh, because large ensemble music is like uh, you're looking realistically at a $5,000 plus commission. And what, uh, what you could do is you could, um, if you were a band director at X university, you could reach out to your band director friends at uh, 10 other universities and say, hey, would you be willing to pay into this consortium a little bit of your budget this year? Uh, and that way we can bring this piece to life and then we can all perform it at the same time. It'll be great for the composer. It'll be great for us. Moving away from your purely compositional activities, you recently started a new endeavor, Basket of Owls. Yes. What is this? Can you talk more about the mission of this group? <sighs> yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, so... Uh, it's all because of um, Twitter uh, <laughs> and a tweet uh, by um, Robin High that, that reads, uh, you ever notice how UK composer bios are like, their music has been played by the Royal London Symphonic Philharmonic Symphonia Orchestra. And American composers are like, their music has been played by Basket of Owls Ensemble. Um, and I took one look at that tweet and I'm like, oh, I have to brand that. I, I have to I have to brand that right now. I have so I went and made a logo, and then I was and and then I posted the logo, and like people were like, "That's a really good logo." And then it had a Twitter account, and then I was asking, and then like people were expressing interest, and I was like, and and I was like, "Okay, well, I guess I'm actually doing this." 
Um, so what Basket of Owls became was an idea that I'd actually been uh, playing with for a while, which was uh, the idea of um, bringing more text into my musical practice um, and finding other like-minded performers and composers who have the same kinds of relationships and can uh, work remotely through overdubbing and sharing audio uh, on creating these projects uh, where text was part of it. And uh, the idea of Basket of Owls is we all come from different backgrounds, we all come from different, different situations and different practices, and we come together uh, every once in a while and create something interesting. So uh, the ensemble is still in its infancy, so I'm hesitant to say everything that that ensemble is because it could still be many things. And that's kind of the nice thing about Basket of Owls is is I really want it to grow outside of me. I don't want to be the only, I don't want to be the owl in charge or anything. We we are currently looking for more owls as well, um, uh, and we already have our first uh, we already have our first project out there on YouTube, um, which is a David Edinburgh style uh, nature documentary audio. Um, about a pair of barn owls who decided to make their nest in a basket. In addition to your work as a composer, you post frequently in your blog about topics uh, frequently related to identity. And one of the things that we've been particularly interested in this year is um, approaching and sustaining conversations related to ADEI work in the classical music industry uh, and, and well more broadly in the small ensemble industry. So um, I was wondering if you would feel comfortable sharing some of your thoughts about how to acknowledge one's privileges while also addressing the challenges associated with other aspects of one's identity. DEI work is complicated. I, I have very mixed feelings about the way that a lot of organizations and ensembles do it because uh, I believe that if you acknowledge the DEI work uh, in a way that is meant to glorify the ensemble or glorify the organization through its commitment to uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, then you've missed the point. That erases a lot of people's experiences. Um, because, and, and it trivializes a lot of the experiences that, uh, marginalized composers, uh, have because it requires us to identify with a certain amount of stereotypes, um, of, uh, of, of race or stereotypes of gender, um, as a non-binary person. I don't actually owe anyone the image they think of when they think of non-binary people, whatever that may be. Um, as a as a as a queer person, as a as a gay person, I don't I don't um, owe anyone uh, any sort of stereotype they want to um, assign to me without my permission. Um, as an autistic person, I certainly don't know anyone that. And those are all, and all of the ways that I am um, marginalized are invisible. 
to the DEI work that a lot of these organizations and a lot of ensembles are doing. Um, so I am very skeptical and very cynical regarding DEI work because it's not because I haven't uh, I haven't really not only have I not felt seen but I have not felt particularly but uh, but I have felt that it's two steps forward one step back if that um, it's two steps forward two steps back <laughs> occasionally like if you only perform the music of black composers during the month of February which is Black History Month, or you only perform the music of queer composers during June, which is Pride, um, then that's that's bad. That's not right. That's, that is, uh, you are doing this uh, in a performative way. You are not actually committing to a, uh, to a ongoing process of examining uh, examining appreciating and platform and and platforming these artists and saying these are important voices who deserve to be heard and deserve to be part of our conversations and i wrote a long blog post um called am i am i am i marginalized enough for you that examined uh the how I was always in this middle ground, in this liminal space between marginalized communities and non-marginalized communities. Um, how, uh, because I was white, I fit in with the marginal, the non-marginalized communities, the um, and the privileged communities, and uh, because I was dis disabled. Uh, and queer, um, I, but I was, I was just barely not privileged enough to exist in the privileged community and just barely not marginalized enough to exist in the marginalized community. So I was in this space where I had been marginalized from both. And I found that to be incredibly uncomfortable. And I, I, I imagine that there are a lot of people like me. project would you most want to embark on in the near-ish future? Oh, what a good question. Um, I, I think that I'm really happy where I am. Um, I know that sounds weird, but like I have so many great projects going on right now. Uh, and I love doing Bridges projects. I'm, I'm loving doing Basket of Owls projects. Um, 
I'm currently working on a piece for baritone saxophone and harp about Legos and autistic joy, and I can't wait. And that's and it's some it's it's some writing that I really enjoy. What I would love to do is I would love to write more music, and I'm working on it, in which I sit in with an ensemble as a fellow musician and narrate text that has been embedded into the music. And that would be a way that like I could like come to a school or come to a concert and uh, and rehearse with the ensemble and work with them and uh, they could get to know me, I could get to know them through the context of this piece. And I would love to perform with them telling stories using my own voice as an instrument um, in the context of chamber music. That's really where I want to go. I think more people need to do that. <laughs> so final question. You are very fascinated by the concept of magic. What exactly is magic to you? That's easy, actually. That's an easy question, uh, which is surprising. Um, <laughs> but magic to me is the art of the animated short. I often refer to myself, uh, I can't remember who said this first, and it's always stuck with me, um, but I am the Pixar animator of composers. Mm. And that has always stuck with me because it's so true and so and so apt and so lovely and such a compliment. Um, and there are amazing animated shorts out there. Um, I uh, sometimes troll the um, uh, the old like video galleries of California Institute of the Arts, CalArts, recent graduates um, who put together these amazing films. One of my favorites is um, The Hardest Jigsaw. It's animated by Eric Anderson and it just, there's no, it's wordless. It's just animation and music and it's just so special. The Pixar short film um, Bao is is also just a magical film, and just you you just you feel uh, like you can uh, reach into the deepest parts of hu of the human condition, and you 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 can access those little kernels of truth, and that's what I and, that, and that's what that's what I'm really going for in my art is. Magic is magic is important to me, and I think the closest that humans have come to finding real magic in the world is through the art of animation. With that, we have come to the end of this incredibly magical interview today with the wonderful Kincaid Rob. Now, obviously, everything about Kincaid will be popped down in the show notes. We recommend that you find their Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Uh, they are an active Twitter user, which is always highly entertaining on the uh, hashtag new music threads. And without further ado... Thank you so much for chatting with us today. This was just a delight. I've just been giggling the whole way through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. 
If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Kincaid Rab and performed by Dan Kubis, Daniel Kuntz, Jenna Seyman, and Paradise Winds. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks 